Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much, worship team, for bringing us directly into the passage today with your music. This has been a wonderful time of worship, and we are going to continue this worship together. Today, we are going to rest on the rock of Jesus Christ, and this is a good message. It has encouraged me so much to prepare this message, and I hope it is an encouragement to you all as well. So, I thank you for being here. Today, we're going to be in Philippians, first chapter. So, we're going to start at verse 1, read through verse 11 here in just a little bit. But before we do that, I want us to start this morning with a little bit of a personal reflection. Paul starts this letter by recalling his own remembrance of the Philippian church. And I want us to start there too. I want us to start in the same place that Paul starts here. So I want us to encourage us, take a moment and just think about who has partnered with us in the gospel. Who in your life has engaged with you in partnership in the gospel? It may be a good place to start with a person who first shared the gospel with you. That person certainly partnered with you by bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to you. Maybe it's somebody who has come alongside you and encouraged you when you were struggling and turned your attention to Christ. Maybe it's somebody who's helped you in physical or financial ways along the way. Maybe it's somebody who, whatever they have done in the name of Christ, they have partnered with you for the sake of the gospel in your life or partnered with you to carry the gospel forward. Think about those folks and be thankful. Remember them. Remember what it was about them, what God was doing in them that causes you to be thankful to God for their sake. This is what Paul's doing in this letter, and I think it's good, I think it's right for us to do the same thing. So I want us to start there today and set our minds on Christ in those around us. And with that is kind of our starting point. Let's read our text for today. Well, before we do that, let's open in prayer. Holy Father, you have given us a good word today. We thank you for using Paul to write this letter to the church in Philippi and indeed even to us today. This letter is for us. Your good word is always for us. It nourishes us and encourages us and it draws us into fellowship with you, Lord Jesus. Would you help us to receive and receive your truth in this word today? Would you help us to stand on the foundation of Christ alone with the eternal view of, Christ, of living with Christ face to face personally in all of eternity? May that be the foundation of our faith, Christ alone for all times, today, tomorrow, and into eternity. Lord, would you do a work in us, open your word to us, and enrich our lives, grow us in maturity in Christ today. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So Philippians, starting in verse 1, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of, grace, of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Amen and amen. May that be so for us. So we'll start with Paul's greeting here. It's customary for people in the Greco-Roman era like Paul, to open a letter by first introducing themselves um, and then offering a blessing or a well-wishing. You see that in verses 1 and 2. And Gus worked over that thoroughly last week, so we're not going to dwell there again. Um, but I do want to mention one additional thing that I noticed over the last couple weeks in, in, in my own studies is that Paul does something that's kind of unique in this letter. He, he doesn't do this in any of his other letters to the churches. Um, he directly addresses overseers and deacons in this letter, in his, in his opening address. He doesn't do that in any of the, of the other letters, and I find that very interesting. Towards the end of the letter, in chapter 4, verse 1, he, he pleads, really is, is the right word to use, I think. He pleads with these two women, Euodia and Syntyche by name. He names them, which is... Also, kind of unusual for Paul to do in his letters. And I think these two anomalies in this letter are actually related together. And uh, right now, I just want to call our attention to it because it's, it's right here. This is where we start. So I want to bring our attention to it. I'm going to deal with this more in the application side of things. So we'll come back to this one. I'm not going to expand on it at the moment. But I just want to bring it to your attention and we'll come back to this one. For the rest of our time, I want to focus on verses 3 through 11. For organizational purposes, I've, I've kind of broke this up into, into three key points. Uh, the first is going to be Paul's thankfulness for the fruit of the vine. The second point we'll cover will be Paul's thankfulness to the vine dresser. And the third point is going to be Paul's prayer for increasing fruitfulness. So first, his thankfulness for the fruit on the vine. Look at verses 3 through 5 with me. Paul says in verse 3 that as he remembers the Philippians, he's thankful. What does he remember? Let's look quickly back at Paul's second missionary journey as it led him to Philippi. During the second missionary journey, you can see this. You can go back and you don't need to turn there now, but you can go back and see this all in Acts 16. During the second journey... Paul's missionary team seems to hit a wall midstream in their journey. Acts 16.8 tells us that the team was blocked by the Spirit. The Spirit intercedes, and the Spirit prevents them from even being able to speak the word, it says. 
And the Spirit forbids them to go into Asia where they had planned to go. The Holy Spirit is stopping them. That had to have been, I can only imagine how frustrating that must have been for Paul. This man, you read everything you read about him, he's preaching Christ, he's preaching Christ, he's pre- you can't shut the guy up. But the Holy Spirit does. That's what the Word tells us. And while they seem to be banging their heads against the wall, the Lord gives Paul a vision in the night, one night, of a man of Macedonia, urging him to come over to Macedonia and help them. That vision ultimately leads them to Philippi. When they get to Philippi, the Spirit allows Paul to finally preach again. And the word is effective. Lydia believes. She believes the gospel. And her whole household, the word says, is saved. Some days later, in the name of Jesus Christ, Paul evicts this unclean spirit from a slave girl. The girl's owners are really ticked off about this. They were making a lot of money off of the divination that this spirit was doing through this little girl. And they immediately, the word says, they immediately have Paul and Silas arrested, drug into the, into the city market in front of the magistrates, and they are accused of being, a, basically, of being a menace to society by propagating some unstrange, unRoman gospel, right? And they're summarily judged right on the spot, just judged right there on the spot, no real trial at all. And then they're stripped and beaten with rods. And it says pretty emphatic, this was a thorough beating. Beaten across the back with rods, drugged to the jail and thrown in jail. That very night, God shakes the earth and bursts open all the jail cell doors, not just Paul and Silas's, all of them. The jailer sees all these doors open, and he thinks he's lost all his prisoners. That's a death sentence for him, and he just presumes, he's like, they're all gone. I'm a dead man. I'm just going to kill myself right now. Paul cries out from the darkness of his own cell and says, wait, wait, we're all here. And he stops him. All of that causes the jailer to wonder about Christ. And Paul gives him the gospel. And he and his whole household believe and are baptized that very night. Then after encouraging the brethren, Paul and his team leave Philippi for Thessalonica. That's the greatest detail we see in Acts about Philippi. That's some pretty glorious, vivid things for Paul to be remembering. Just those alone. I'm sure there were a lot of other things he's remembering too. But those are intense moments. These are amazing things to be be remembering. Paul's vivid memories with the Philippians cause him to be thankful. He's thankful for these memories. And they lead to regular prayers, he says. As Paul prays for them, he remembers the details, the faces, the events, the fellowship, and he's praying joyfully. His personal prayers for the Philippians bring him joy. So the first grounds that Paul gives us for his thankfulness really are his personal memories of interacting with the Philippians, right? His memories are important here. In verse 5, Paul presents some additional grounds for his thankfulness that are more tangible here. These are external. These are something you can see and touch, not just his memories. This verse starts with a because. That indicates for us that there's a causal statement. There's some grounds for something coming. 
He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What does your partnership in the gospel mean? We can look later in the letter to find out a few details here. Philippians 4, 15 through 16 clearly shows that the Philippians partnered with Paul through financial means. It says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, you see the tie there, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. The Philippian church gave to support Paul on his missionary journey beyond his time with them. These are new believers. This is a baby church. And during this same missionary journey in which they first received the gospel, they already begin to give and support Paul going forward to carry the gospel on. Philippians 2.25 gives us another aspect of this. Personal service is what we see there. He says in verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. They sent one of their own, actually carrying a financial gift to him. But he did more than just deliver a gift. He was the gift. Skip down to verse 30. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So at first blush here, Paul is thanking the Philippians because they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where it all had to start. They had to believe first. Then they financially partnered with him in the work of the gospel. And then they're living out the gospel by embodying sacrificial personal service, like Jesus and Paul did, for the sake of the gospel. This is what I'm calling for this, for this message, the fruit on the vine. Paul is looking at the Philippian church, and he is identifying, he's showing them. What I see in all of this is the fruit of the gospel coming out of you. This is the fruit on the vine. Now let's look at Paul's thankfulness to the fine dresser. When we look closely at what Paul says here, we can see that although he's writing this letter to the Philippians, he's giving all his thankfulness, all, he's, all of his expression of thankfulness and joy are to God. He's not saying, I thank you Philippians for yours. He's saying, I thank God for all of this stuff in you. Paul is thanking God for his supremacy over all things, in all things. Paul knows that the fruit that he has just identified is produced by God alone. It's not a product of Paul's work or of the Philippians' merit or their own efforts. It is from God. Paul's filled with joy because Christ Jesus, his only love, is being proven worthy of honor. It's being proven worthy of honor through this radical transformation of the believers in Philippi. This deeper grounds for Paul's thankfulness and joy is the observable evidence of God at work in the saints in Philippi. Paul isn't done here yet. 
He's about to keep digging. He's digging deep down into this foundation, and he's going to give us even more ground for his thanksgiving in verse 6. He says, I am sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. First of all, what is Paul sure of? What is he sure of? And why does he have to support his thankfulness with a statement of surety? Paul's sure that God started something good in the Philippians and that he won't leave it unfinished. Paul is making it clear to the Philippians that God is with them personally. He's with them personally and is actively working out his character in them. How can we know that? God starts a work in a person when he calls them to himself. John 6:44 tells us, no one, Jesus speaking here, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, calls him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see that? The beginning of our faith starts with a work of God. It doesn't start in us. It starts with a work of God in us. The Father alone draws us to Jesus. I love in that verse that Jesus immediately couples the call of God to our resurrection. And it is personal. It is deeply personal. Notice how he says, I, I myself will raise him up on the last day. It's not y'all, it's, it's a personal prayer. Him, I, myself, I, Jesus Christ, will raise him up on life. Each one he's engaged with personally. Now, Paul tells the Philippians that he gives God thanks in all of this because it's God who gave them faith to believe. It's God who gave them a gracious desire to give to the gospel. It's God who gave them the gracious desire to serve the gospel personally. And because God is faithfully working in them all the way up until his son, their king, comes home to, comes to take them home to himself. God is doing all of this. You see how personal this is? God is engaged in us, in the church, in us, each of us individually, and in all of us corporately. God is doing this work. He started it, he's working it through, and he's coming to complete it personally. Our father didn't robe himself in some biohazard barrier suit and then pull up a rifle with a, a dart loaded with some sort of sin inoculum and shoot us from a long distance in some weird, you know, anesthetic, untouchable way. That's not how he's done this work. He's doing it completely opposite of that. He laid aside his glory. He didn't put something on that was going to protect him. He put on our flesh. He laid aside his glory. He took on our flesh and came out from heaven to us, willingly touching us even. You see it all through the Gospels. Christ is touching people and allowing them to touch him. He touched us despite all of the infectious leprosy of sin that was all over us and all up in us. He didn't hesitate. He did it anyways. 
Jesus was never afraid of becoming unclean or unholy by touching us. When he touches us, his holiness comes out of him and dispels what is unholy or unrighteous in us. He cleanses us by touching us. He's not made unclean by touch. You see that? It's all coming out of him. And it has to. It's the only way. He walked with us, and he touched us, and then he sent his own spirit to live in us. Our God is deeply personal. He himself starts his work, and he himself sees it through to completion. And once God starts a good work, nothing can stop it. Nothing. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 tells us that for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The calling of God is irrevocable. It can't be taken away from you. Once he started it, nothing can stop it. These truths are the foundation of the deepest footings of Paul's surety and his thankfulness. Now let's look at the day of Jesus Christ. That is a reference to the bodily return of Jesus, the second coming of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul gives reference to the day of Christ in two passages, two other passages in Philippians here. The first one's in verse 10 of our, of our text today. He says, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. For the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The second reference you see in Philippians 2.16, holding fast, he says, to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul's going to continue this theme. He's starting it here at the very start of the letter, and he continues it through the letter. And I don't have the time today to expound on the return of Christ. That topic is going to, would take too much time, and that's not the central focus of this particular message today, but it's deeply important to us all. I would encourage you to do some word study on that. I have a list of verses if you want them real quick that can help you get a, kind of prime the pump for you. In particular, though, right now, I want to turn our attention to 2 Timothy 4.8, where Paul also refers to the day of Christ here. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He's referring to the day of Christ, the return of Christ. And not only to me, he says, but also to all who have loved his appearing, to all. This isn't just for Paul. It's not just for super apostles. It's not just for super saints. It's for all who trust in Christ. And he specifically says, all who have loved his appearing. I think that bears weight on our conversation today from Philippians. Paul wants the Philippians to be amongst those who have loved his appearing. I think that's why he's bringing this up in this conversation, in this letter. He wants them to long for the day. He wants them to strive towards the day. If Christ is our bridegroom, and he is, if Christ is our bridegroom, 
and we are his bride. And the day of Christ is our wedding day, then Paul is encouraging us to keep that day preeminent in our thoughts. Does a bride neglect her upcoming wedding day? That's what he's telling us. That's why, those, that's why that imagery is given to us. It's that important. It's that central in our focus. We ought to orient our moment-by-moment and day-by-day choices towards that day, towards the day of our Savior. By referencing the day of the Lord, Paul is putting forward the long view, the long view for the Philippians, which includes the truth that they're no longer citizens of this world. They're not. He's calling the Philippians to focus not only on the gospel of Christ here and now, but also in eternal life, in person with Christ. The fullness of the gospel, the whole thing. It starts with the fact that we were sinners. I didn't know Christ. I was dead apart from him. But he reached out to me, and he called me, and he saved me. And now he's continuing to work in me all the way to the completion of that work. And then he's coming to take me home personally to him. That's the whole complete gospel. He's bringing their attention to the entire package. Paul drives this home in Philippians 3.20, where he states, our citizenship is in heaven. It's in heaven, and from it, and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, along with the Philippians, are now, through the grace of Christ Jesus, citizens of heaven. We're citizens of heaven. That's important to the Philippians. Philippi was a Roman colony. Citizenship was a big deal to them. They're a town not in Italy, outside of Italy, but they have been granted colonial status by Rome. Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon. He captured the city in 360 BC. Philip of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great. There's a long line of major historical events that are going to start here in Philippi. Philippi was a sent or was the scene of a massive and decisive battle later on that ended a Roman civil war. The jointly commanded army of Octavian, who became Emperor Augustus, and Mark Antony defeated the army of Brutus and Cassius, who were the leaders of the insurrection and assassination of Julius Caesar. We've all read about that stuff in history, right? There's some kind of major stuff going on there. In honor of that battle, Emperor Augustus gave Philippi the privilege of becoming a Roman colony. They're a Roman colony for a pretty prime reason. This isn't just accidental. And as, as a Roman colony, they're granted, literally, they're literally like a little mini Rome. They have the same laws, they have the same land ownership rights, the same tax advantages local governance rights, citizenship rights. They're no different than anybody who lived on Italian soil. That's a big deal, especially under Roman rule. That's a big deal. So to be told that you're no longer a citizen of there, but a citizen of heaven? Wow. Wow. 
I think it's amazing. When we look back at, at what Paul did, his experience, part of what he remembers back that we see back in Acts 16 is when he was beaten. Paul's a Roman citizen. In a Roman colonial town, he was beaten without due process. He could have claimed his citizenship right then and there and prevented that beating, but he didn't. He claimed it after the fact, after the jailer had been saved. Whoa. Can you imagine what that did to the Philippian believers and to that jailer, to everybody who saw it? You did, what are you doing? You didn't claim your rights as a citizen? He said, no. No, Paul's rights as a citizen really belong in heaven. There was a much more important citizenship to him. He didn't use his citizenship in Rome to his advantage other than to further the gospel. So, this is amazing. Paul's calling the Philippians and us literally to hold fast to our assurance. You see that? All of this is, is what we like to call in theological, this is our assurance. We have assurance in Christ Jesus because of all that he has done, is doing, and will do. It's all in his hands. Can we today, brothers and sisters, say that we have loved and are loving his appearing? Do we think that way? I know that I don't every day. And I want that to change. I want, I want my mind transformed so that, that that simple fact, that very fundamental truth that, I, Lord, I'm longing for the day you return. I'm longing for the day you return, that I would be prepared for you and that you would find me pleasing on that day. That's what he's calling the Philippians to do. And now the Apostle Paul, this great and godly man, the founder of this church, has made this clear that this, this is a surety of work, that it will be completed by God, right? God's going to do all this stuff. It's all in his control. He's sovereign over it all. Does that mean they can just kick back and relax now? Does it mean that we should, can kind of think, well, God's determined to do all this stuff and he's said he's gonna finish it and nothing can stop it, so I'm gonna enjoy myself along the ride. He's gonna clean everything up in the end. He's gonna finish what he started. No, that's not what Paul's saying. It's not what he's saying at all. He's already shown that their efforts, their affections in action, if you will, are praiseworthy proof that they're true partners with him in the grace of the gospel. They matter. Your actions matter. Paul goes on in this letter to state that he himself presses on. He presses on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, he says in Philippians 3.14. He's striving. These are athletic words, effort words. The striving that Paul claims is not for the sake of self-justification or self-sanctification. He knows that our justification is complete in the work of Christ on the cross. It's done. There's nothing can be added to it. He also knows that our, our sanctification is totally a work of God in us. We don't do it. It's him who does it. So what's his motivation here? Paul gives us his motivation in Philippians 3.12. He says, not that I have already obtained this, perfection, 
or I'm already perfect, but I press on. There's that active word again. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul's motivation is found in his identity in Christ. It's not his own work. It's not his striving to do something for his own sake. He says, Christ has already done this in me. It's already done. His motivation is born out of a grateful sense of obligation that is a right response, a righteous response to the grace of forgiveness in Christ. His motivation is grounded in his blessed identity in Christ. And that's what he's trying to impart to the Philippians. Christ is worth pursuing. There's one more ground for Paul's thankfulness. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, Paul says, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, why does Paul need to state that it's right for him to feel this way? Being thankful and joyful for what God's doing, doesn't, doesn't it already seem that it's right? To, I mean, why does he have to say it that way? I think it's because it's God's testimony. The affection he's referring to here is Christ's affection. God is testifying through him about something that he sees in the Philippian church. So let's, let's dig into that real quick. First, Paul sees grace at work in them, in the church in Philippi, as true evidence of Christ in them. Grace at work. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul's referring to the, the fruit that he's already mentioned earlier in this passage. He's referring to the fruit. What I've seen in you is actually the fruit of God working through you. And the fact that I can see that says something about you, Paul's saying. Now, because of what he sees in them, Jesus has caused Paul to yearn for them with the affection of Christ. For God is my witness, Paul says, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Not Paul's affections. It's not his own. This isn't something that he's, is in him naturally of his own. This is something Christ has put in him. This is a work of the Holy Spirit in Paul. And so he's honoring God and saying, this isn't for me. God is seeing this in you. And he's put this in me. And so I'm going to open my mouth and testify that God is pleased with you. And now because Paul sees the handiwork of God in them, he holds them in his heart. This is like, like holding a treasure close. It's precious. And because they share with him in the grace of Christ and because God has borne witness to the truth, that, to this truth by giving Paul this special Christ-derived affection for them, it is therefore right or righteous for him to feel this way. You see that? It's, this is, Paul's not saying it's, it's right for me of my own volition. It's right. It's right because it's something of God. This is God's righteousness towards you. 
Paul's saying that his affection for the Philippians is one more fundamental piece of spiritual evidence. We've talked about physical, tangible things that we can be seen. But now this is a spiritual manifestation through the Spirit in him that says, now this is also bearing evidence to who you are. And it contributes to his surety for them and is part of his thankfulness and his joyfulness. So the Philippian church, like Paul, belonged to Christ. That's his central point here. You belong to Christ. And Paul wants them to know all about that. I imagine this is deeply encouraging to the church in Philippi. Paul is telling them that he sees them as Christ sees them. Isn't that magnificent? I'm seeing you in the same way Christ is seeing you. He's given this to me, so it's from him. This is how he sees you. Not like the world sees you. Paul knows that they need to know this so that they can see themselves and each other with the same mind of Christ. They no longer belong to Caesar and his empire. They no longer belong to Satan or this world. They are no longer slaves to sin and death. They are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They've been transformed, transferred, conferred from one to the other. This is who they are today. And this, this should be their spiritual motivation in all things. And then Paul turns to prayer. Paul prays for more fruitfulness. Through all of this, Paul has kind of effectively been kind of lifting the mainsails. He's hoisting the sails on a ship. And now as he turns to pray, he's asking God to fill the sails and drive them forward. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul emphatically asked the Lord to increase their love even more. His prayer and the evidence he's presented clearly indicate that the Philippians do have they do have the love of Christ. He's not saying that you don't have it and you need to get it. They have it. He's asking for more of it in them. More. He wants their fruit to abound abundantly. He connects this motivation, which is the love that comes from the Spirit of God in this passage, with kind of a compass heading, the day of Christ. That's the mark. That's where they're headed towards. And then with the wisdom to navigate the ocean currents that are sure to cause them to want to drift off of that course, knowledge and discernment. The objective of the journey is Christ in the kingdom come. And Paul is praying that they will have everything they need to get there in Christ. Now while Paul is sure that the Lord will bring this all to completion, he still prays for it to be so. He's still praying for it. By doing so, I think he exemplifies that we are partners like him. We are partners with God in this grace, asking him as humble children do. My kids do this with me. They know that I can do something for them. They know that I probably will do something, but they ask and they ask and they ask and they ask and they ask, right? They know it. 
but they still ask. They don't just sit and wait. They're engaged in it. That's what Paul's exemplifying for us. We know that God is going to do this, but we partner with him. We come into alignment with him, with his will. We share his desire. We begin to ask and, and call to him to do what we know only he can do. So what do we do with all of this? I've been, uh, oh, over the last couple of, well, month or so, I've been making some carne asada. Ooh, it's good stuff, tasty. I love it. I love it. It's so yummy. That meat is marinated for days. I mean, it's, it's marinated, right? It's good stuff, good, strong spices. It's marinated for a long time. But once it's been in the marinade for days, it, that stuff can't taste like anything else after that. It's been in the vat. It's been marinating for a long time. Its taste, its flavor is fixed now forever. I'm pretty sure I could take that stuff and throw it out in the driveway and run over it with my truck. It would taste the same. It'd probably be a little gritty in my teeth, but it's going to taste the same. It's going to taste good. I love it. We all need to be like that meat. This message that Paul is starting this letter off, this is the marinade. This is what he's calling the Philippian church to boom, be plunged into. Be plunged into this. Be transformed by this. Paul's encouraging us to marinate in the grace and assurance of the whole gospel so that we look like citizens of heaven, so that we sound like citizens of heaven, so we act like citizens of heaven and are motivated towards the glory of heaven, who is Christ Jesus himself. That's what Paul's calling us to. That's what Paul's encouraging the church in Philippi to do. And we just celebrated our 25th anniversary. How might this message inform 25 years of ministry past and who knows how much yet to come? I pray as much as we can until the day of the Lord. Now, as we remember all the saints who have shared the gospel with us, who have partnered with us in the gospel, to use Paul's terms, over the last 25 years, as we remember all those saints who have partnered with us. Let us be filled with thanksgiving and be drawn into prayer and give joyful thanks to God for them and for his work in them. That's what Paul does here. And Paul tells us to follow his example, so maybe we ought to do that too. Have we really been intentional about that? I think it would be amazing to watch what he does in us as we do that. Then, based on the grounds of our thankfulness, we all ought to encourage our brothers and sisters by telling them, by telling them that we are thankful for the work of Christ in them. We ought to be specific about it. Let us seek to see Christ in one another, brothers and sisters, and then, and then praise him when we find him. Wouldn't that be awesome? We look at one another and we begin to see the work of Christ, the handiwork of Christ in you, and I go, praise God for what he's doing in you. And I say as much to you. 
specifically so that you are also encouraged. We all need to pray for the Spirit to fill each other's lives with more and more of the fruit of righteousness so that we will be prepared and delightful to our Lord on that day. We get to do that together. We all get to do that together. Now, I mentioned one thing at the start of this message that I'd noticed, that Paul, he speaks to the overseers and deacons in a unique way in this letter, and then he addresses two specific people by name, Syntyche and Iodia, at the end. There's obviously a division, some sort of schism between the two of them. I think all of what we've been talking about here, Paul is bringing to bear to address that schism. Paul knows that divisions within the church destroy the church. Because if we have divisions within the church, there's sin in the church. And we are no longer standing on the foundations that he's just laid. This matters. This matters deeply. And there was something going on in this church. The church was young. It was still going good and strong. But this little thing had begun. And Paul could not let it ride. He would not let it ride. And so he addresses it. And I think we dare not skip over that. Paul wrote this letter to the saints, but he took a unique opportunity to highlight the elders and the deacons. And so, as I've been prepping this message and I've been thinking this through, I've really been trying to take this message to heart because I'm one of the elders here. And so I've been preaching this message to me in particular. And I'm standing here and I'm preaching it to each of the elders, my brothers in arms, in this body. We have got to be unified in Christ. We have got to be. What does Paul call Yodi and Syntyche to? What does he plead for them to do? He pleads for them <laughs> to agree in the Lord. To agree in the Lord. He doesn't plead for them to fix your problems. He says, agree in the Lord. Come back to your foundation of faith. Come back to your assurance. And let Christ work out this bad leaven from you. As we focus on Christ and Christ alone, as we drink in the grace that he's given to us, as we ask him to fill him with his love, he pushes out the stuff that doesn't belong in us. And he can mend and will mend breaks that we have in our body. So as we look forward in this church, I pray, I hope and I pray, and I'm taking this to heart. We need to agree in the Lord. And wherever we may have had over the last 25 years breaks in relationship, this is the clarion call to us. Paul is addressing this directly. And so I want to hear it myself, and I want to respond to it.
And so that's why I brought that up. I'm not going to call anybody out or anything like that. This pulpit's not the right place to do that. But as I preach faithfully, I pray that the Lord will call people and that we will be drawn together in unity so that we are strong and pleasing and beautiful and filled with the fruit of righteousness as a body on the day of Christ. That's the application of this message. This letter to the Philippians is deeply encouraging, and I am in love with it. I'm in love with the author of it. Christ alone has written this to us, and he loves us. Hold fast to him. Hold fast to him because he is holding fast to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of your encouragement in us. Thank you for looking at us, seeing us, for seeing, for showing us, Father, your handiwork in us. Thank you for giving each of us to one another so that we can be your eyes and your voice of encouragement. Lord, would you fill us with your love? Would you give us all knowledge and discernment that we may stay the course and arrive on our heavenly shores back in our citizenship, which is heaven, to take the hand of our king, our bridegroom, and know real, lasting, everlasting love and peace and joy and praise your glorious name forever. Thank you, Father, for giving us your name. Transform our hearts, Lord. Transform our minds that we would seek you and therefore be unified with one another in your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.